Extra Life unites thousands of gamers around the world to play games in support of their local Children's Miracle Network hospital. Since 2008, Extra Life has raised more than $40 million for sick and injured kids. Visit geektherapy.com slash extra life to learn more and join us on November 3rd in raising funds to help kids. Welcome to Headshots, the psychology and gaming show on the Geek Therapy Network. My name is Josue Cardona with Kelly Dunlap. Oh, hi. Today, I want to talk about something that I've been thinking about for a really, really long time. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we've never touched this topic on the show, I don't think, um, in any way, which is the idea of peer review in the games industry. Like you and I come at it from a very interesting perspective because we both come from the mental health field, right? Uh, things that are written, mental health are very, I mean, there are academic journals that, are, that relate to mental health that are what, what we did in school and part of our professional careers. But then video games are kind of like this this other beast, right? Because there are so many uh, different aspects of video games that are studied and that people talk about. And but video games, there are so many different things that you can study in video games. And so I want to have like a, a broad conversation uh, with you about this, because I think we, we both have some interesting perspectives as people who have consumed a lot of um, journal articles about this, have written and published a few, and we've published things in other mediums too, including books and this podcast. So what do you think? It, it is a, a, a tough topic, I think, to get into because, I mean, like when you said, uh, pointed out, games are inherently multidisciplinary. Um, you know, everything from programming to audio to marketing, like these are all places of expertise that you could that you could publish on. And there are uh, precious few, but they, they do exist, academic journals that are focused on games. And they, they do have, uh, some of them have peer review, but yeah, it's it's tough when your medium is so spread out to have some kind of like centralized voice for vetting, you know, what is good research and and what is not. And I, I guess maybe that's where we should start um, by just kind of maybe taking a step back and explaining just in case someone might not know what peer review is. Yes, so please. when when you do research of any kind, whether you're running an experiment or you're doing something that's theoretical and you want to have it published in, in an academic journal, there are some journals where you, you send it in, they review it, and they tell you yes or no. But the more respected journals um, are the ones who have a little bit of a, a higher standard in that when you submit your research, your peers, your colleagues uh, are review it and then basically accept or reject or um, can accept with changes. So if you were to send in something about let's say, uh, the personality of Twitch streamers, for example, if you were to submit that as a research paper, that journal would use its editorial board to review what you've written and decide whether or not it's good enough to make publication. And the, the idea behind peer review is that it's kind of a check on the science. You have experts in the field reviewing research coming in to make sure that it's accurate, to make sure that it is helpful, that it's putting something new and interesting into the environment. And in a perfect world, that is how peer review works. So uh, I, I looked up how many journals there are uh, related to games. There, I found a lot. Because there are a lot of that crossover. It's like games and learning and games and behavior change and, you know, the aesthetics of games. So the things that touch games in general, in journals, there seem to be a lot. But you, you said that only a few actually do peer review. So, I mean, there are journals that do peer review and there are journals that do not. What is the difference between them and, and why, why are there two different types of journals? 
I mean, one of the biggest hurdles is, is being able to have that editorial review board to do the peer review. So there's a really fantastic journal called Well Played. It's put out by ETC Press, which is a publishing house within Carnegie Mellon University. And they have a, a lot of journals that they put out. And uh, but Well Played is, is one that I'm most familiar with. And it's not peer reviewed. Um, and that's because it takes a lot of work. As, as someone who is currently working on a games as the editor for a games journal that is doing peer review, I can I can tell you, it is incredibly labor intensive to to do it because it when you for example let's let's do like how a bill becomes a law, but rather how research becomes peer reviewed, I guess. So for example, for for the journal that I'm working on, someone sends in their research and then it gets. From me, it gets sent to our copy editor, who then, quote unquote, blinds the paper, which means that uh, our copy editor removes any kind of um, distinguishing or, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Identifying. Thank you. Identifying information so that the the person whoever reads this research doesn't know who wrote it. And that the idea behind that, this is considered blind peer review, which is just one kind of peer review. Um, it's the idea to maybe uh, lower bias so that you don't automatically give the thumbs up to your friends or the thumbs down to somebody you don't like. And it helps, again, in theory, to level the playing field, whether you are, you know, the uh, the Marsha Linehan for our psych people or, you know, someone just getting started in the field or for our games people, if you're uh, Tracy Fullerton or not, uh, it should help label the playing field because you can't give preference because you don't know who it is. That paper that is, has been blinded and had all that information redacted is then sent to at least two reviewers. On ours, we have two. Sometimes you can have upwards of three or more. So each paper is reviewed by at least two people. Those people then decide to accept, reject, or accept with modifications, meaning that the paper is good, but there are some things that need to be addressed before it's accepted. And then that gets sent back to the author. And then if the author is accepted or accepted with edits, they then have to make all of those edits. And then it gets resent to me to be put into the actual journal itself. So there's that's a lot of steps. And you figure if every article has to be reviewed by at least two people, you know, ideally three in case of a tie, but at least two people, if you get 20 submissions, let's say that, you know, that's at least 40 eyeballs will need to be on those those papers. And so, you know, each reviewer will probably review three or four papers. But as you can imagine, this can become very burdensome on the reviewers. And sometimes it's hard to get reviewers. And it's just, it's this huge, complicated network um, that goes into having peer review. So all of that to say, if there isn't peer review, it's probably because it's too much of a burden for that publication. So in the case of Well Played, which like we, we don't work there, we don't know what goes on behind the scenes. I don't, I don't know how much you know, but at, in the case of Well Played, then it's still respected and, and people appreciate it, right? Like you want your stuff in the Well Played journal, but it's yes. not peer-reviewed. So like why, why would I try to get my stuff published in a journal that does peer review and is going to like take so much longer and give me such a headache when I could just submit it to well played. Well, it, it really depends. So for example, if what you're writing about is more of like a thought experiment um, or your experience playing through a game, a, a quote unquote well-played experience, you know, there's not a whole lot. You, you can't really have somebody check your emotional experience for one. So if you wanted to write about the, the emotional heartstrings of gone home or what remains of Edith Finch, Again, there's not a lot of um, – you could have a lot of empirical information in there or research-based information, but a lot of times it might just not matter. You know, if you're just a scholar and you're trying to put stuff out there to change how people think or feel, 
then, you know, peer review might not be important for you. And that's totally okay. When it starts to get really important is when you start talking about um, academia. So for example, I think it may vary based on institution, but in general, if you are trying to go for a tenure track as a professor at a university, you need to have a certain number of publications, and those publications need to be both peer-reviewed most of the time, and they also need to be indexed. And indexed means that they can be found on like Google Scholar or easily uh, identifiable. And those two things don't necessarily go hand in hand, but peer-reviewed journals tend to be indexed, whereas non-peer-reviewed journals, at least in my experience, which I will totally own, is is relatively new <laughs> compared to many people out there. Um, so yeah, if, if you're just trying to get information out, start a dialogue, have conversations, note observations, have some kind of maybe ethnographic study or something that's more, you know, like less hard science-y, then that's a perfectly, I mean, you could do a peer review, you could do a not peer review. Ultimately, all it really matters is if it matters to you. Okay. So when you say it matters to you, meaning it matters, who is you? The researcher or the, the writer? Yes. The okay. the person who is submitting or all the authors on that paper. So again, if you're going for tenure, you definitely want to be peer, to be in a peer-reviewed journal. If you want to be a professor, even pre-tenured or as an adjunct, you're going to want publications that have been um, in peer-reviewed journals. Those will give you more weight. If you are a researcher or a scientist and you're trying to be um, like well-known in your field, getting published in a peer-reviewed journal, like you said, is laborious and it is harder, but it also carries with the connotation of maybe being, and since it's harder to get into, there's more of a status associated with it. And whether that, whether or not that's helpful or not is definitely up for debate. There's this big conversation going on in academia around peer review and some of its problems, but that's kind of the way it stands right now. This is great because the whole reason why I wanted to have this conversation is because I have seen amazing one-hour essays on YouTube covering games in such detail and with such insight that I thought, this is, this is amazing. And this person didn't choose to write something and send it to a journal for publication. They put this on YouTube. And this particular video, I'm, 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 this is a hypothetical. I've seen many videos like this, right? But maybe this one particular video has... 500,000 views, a million views, which is probably way more, <laughs> way more eyes on it than would possibly read a peer-reviewed journal. Can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> Verified. Right. So, so in the world of video games in particular, right, which is already uh, a digital medium, then why? I, I don't know. Like, uh, this, is, this is at the core of, of what I'm thinking and, and kind of the, the discussion I want to have. Why submit to a journal when I could make a YouTube video or publish an audio essay or just publish a blog? Like, there's so many different options now. And the journal article seems, yeah, like, okay, yeah, I want it. I want, I want my peers, right? Who are, the, actually, let's, let's talk about who are the peers for a second, <laughs> right? Like, I want my, my academic peers to see it. But what if I don't want my academic peers to see it? What if I want my, I want the, like video game enthusiasts to to see it, or I want video game developers to see it is like that, I, I guess that goes into what you said before about it. it depends what what matters to you and and who you want to see it. So is there any more or less validity or respect for someone who is doing really thoughtful pieces on YouTube versus someone who is submitting thoughtful pieces to well played in your opinion? So I would probably say that if you were applying to teach at a university and you cited a one hour um, documentary or explainer that you did, like a really in-depth 
thing, they would probably not either accept that or it would not carry as much weight if it was published in a journal like Well Played. And then get if you decided to go with a different journal that was peer reviewed, that would probably be weighed more heavily. And then if you really wanted to go there, if you could do it in a, a pre-registered open journal, which is a whole other thing, um, you know, that would be like carry the highest weight. And I'm, I'm saying that as I perceive it now, I'm not trying to assign any value to it. I think it's actually probably not not great, um, especially if you do put in that time and that energy. The caveat I would have to that, though, is that when people um, give their GDC talks, so the Game Developers Conference has some of the smartest people in the industry, and they give these talks, and a ton of them are available for free in the GDC vault, totally recommend you checking it out. Like those citing that you were at GDC and you gave a talk like that carries a ton of weight in games academia spaces. So, for example, I did a talk at GDC about about games and and community kind of broadly, and that definitely amps up my game cred. But if I were to go to, say, the APA and say, hey, I did a talk about games and community at GDC and I applied my psych knowledge, they probably wouldn't care Um, because, again, it's outside of the realm of games, the idea of just having a, a talk is not as not as strong as being published in a journal. And that comes down again to the idea that if you got something published in a journal, especially a peer-reviewed journal, it means that somebody reviewed what you wrote, vetted it, and it passed that bar. Whereas anyone pretty much can get up and give a talk at a venue. I mean, I think we've seen plenty of TED Talks, which are absolutely terrible, but they carry with them some kind of of broad significance, um, even though they have not been vetted by the scientific community at large. That's a good point. I mean, like TED, there are TEDx talks and then there's TED Talks. The TED Talk would probably be the, those are definitely vetted and and not everybody gets to go there. And then TEDx Talks, pretty much anybody can can do a TEDx Talk. (laughs) Thank Um, you for clarifying. Yes, TEDx Talks. Yeah. (laughs) Um, There are so many. (laughs) Yeah, got it. Um, so I, I think of influence, for example, how much influence can, like you said, okay, if you're looking for a job, if you're looking for to, to for a teaching gig, then there are particular avenues. But I keep, I keep thinking about like the general, I don't know, like if you're trying to get your idea out there, I think that 30 years ago, the way to do it was to put it in a journal and then... But it's it's 2018. We have so many different options. And if you wanted to reach gamers, you would probably make a video or you would probably do something different, I think. That's that's what I keep coming back to. This idea that th- there are great ideas out there and I guess it bothers me that there are that we're we're saying that only a particular group of people can say which ideas are valid and which are not. But then does that mean that a million views and I don't know, 750,000 thumbs up aren't valid. There's a lot of stuff you can't measure there. But I think that that's important too. That means not only that the idea got out there, but that the idea was appreciated and shared with more people. So one of the biggest challenges that the scientific community is having um, on, on whole is that scientists and researchers generally really suck at communicating to non-science, non-researchers. And like the, the example I always give is, you know, when I went through uh, my doctoral training, I was literally taught to use jargon, to use words that nobody else except another psychologist would know about and to phrase things in a way that only other psychologists would understand. And it, it makes you feel like you're super smart and super important 
on one hand. It also conveys a, a very intense specificity that is important to other clinicians. So it's not all about pomp and circumstance, but you know, it's it's important to have those kind of fine-grained distinctions that only people who are professionals in the field will understand. That's that's important. However, that does not transfer to a wider audience. And I know one thing that always just bums me out to no end is I'll read a fascinating article and I'll go, oh my God, guys, look at this. And I know like nobody reads it because one, apparently not everybody reads academic articles for fun. I, I know it's strange. Mm-hmm. It's strange, mm-hmm. but it, it doesn't happen. But two, you know, especially coming into like the world of games and having to kind of learn a new language and a new professional language on top of what I already knew, it's really intimidating and it can be so exhausting trying to parse through what someone is saying in any academic genre, much less one that you're new to. And so I, it just, it makes me so mad because there's so much fascinating information out there and so much good research that is being done, but it is not being conveyed to a, a large audience. And I'll use GDC as a really great example again. They, I went to GDC once in my entire life, and that was 2016. And I went to so many panels, and I, to this day, still pull the notes up I took from those panels because the people who were talking and the research they'd done was so impactful and important. But if you don't go to GDC, chances are you won't get that. Again, they have some videos from, from the presentations that are, are in the vault, but the vast majority of them are not in the are not freely accessible. So you have to pay for them, which is expensive, or go to GDC, which is insanely expensive. And so it feels like the knowledge is just it's contained to those special few, we happy few who are able to go and, you know, have the finances and the ability to to make those kinds of things happen for us. And I I just hate that that seems to be endemic across pretty much every scientific discipline is the science and the research is for the scientists and the researchers. And that the only thing that the public gets are the sound bites that say journalists pull out, which tend to not be very accurate or nuanced. And so I, I think there is a definite, definite need for better uh, science communication and science literacy. And I don't mean that on the people who are receiving the literacy, but for researchers and scientists to either get good or get someone who is good already at conveying that kind of information. And I will say that that is one of the things I love so much about PACS and about what you do, Josue, what our friends in the Geek Therapy Network, like the Adams and Tony Bean and uh, Dr. B from Take This and like all those researchers who have gone to PAX and presented, that to me is like the most important thing that we can do is, at least in terms of literacy, like me presenting at PAX is not going to get me an extra gold star if I ever try to become a professor because it's a fan convention and it's not academically rigorous. But the 500 people who are in that room who now have a better understanding of what it means to have a mental illness and use games to manage or cope with it, like that to me is so important. That is like the the most important thing to me. I will add the caveat that I have a stable profession that does not rely on me to do publication. So I'm actually in a very privileged position to be able to do that. And people who are trying to become professors or chasing tenure don't have that. So it's just, it's this really messed up system where we reward people with the most most precious things like tenure for being inaccessible to people who could probably benefit the most from what they're studying. So everybody you mentioned, including including me, <laughs> um, I think is guilty of, of something, which is a distinction that I want to make uh, on this whole conversation, which is that I, I'm talking about a journal article versus 
a video, but there's no reason why we couldn't do both. Oh, absolutely. Everybody you mentioned, including me, like every single time I record a podcast, my intention is that that conversation will be a catalyst for me to write something later that will go more in depth and have more organized ideas be better laid out. A smaller part of me is always working on some sort of videos in the in the background that can visually convey some information, maybe do it in a in a shorter time period and every single one of these conversations is supposed to be accessible in multiple ways for multiple people. I never do that. That never happens. <laughs> I never finish a podcast, edit it and then say, "Okay, now I'm going to write that that long blog post that really goes into detail <laughs> on, on what's happening." The closest um we've come to that is creating the the GT forum so that people can kind of have longer conversations about these conversations, but that's still it's still in many ways just like how a journal article is only going to be read by a few people, I know that a podcast is only going to be listened to by certain people. And a video will only be watched by certain people. And unless I write it down in a detailed blog article or at the very least a transcript, it's not going to be indexed by Google. <laughs> um, you know, of audio or video is not going to be indexed by Google as well as that written article. And that's something that I struggle with all the time, constantly. And I think that that's kind of what we're talking about here, that these scientists are writing things down, right? People are, are submitting to these journal articles and then it's there's no effort put into placing it in other places because even if you're going to present then how much better is it that you presented at GDC for example where people had to pay how many thousands of dollars to go see you and the same thing for Pax like Pax is expensive if you live in Boston and maybe you volunteer you can go for free for a couple of days like that's it's still there's still all these barriers to entry Oh, absolutely. And even if you're inside academia, like I can tell you the amount of times I've been doing research and hit a paywall and I didn't want to pay $50 to rent an article for 24 hours. So there's a lot of things wrong with academia. Absolutely. And back to back to your point about, you know, the the blog post and the video. And I just I want to throw out there to be kind to yourself because all those things take effort. And I did video for a little while uh, I had this idea of doing very much what Ali uh, Matu does right now, where he has like these quick videos about psychology. I tried to do that with um, articles that I thought were really important. It is so much work. Like the level of work yeah. that goes even into a crappy video is just so exponentially harder and so much more in depth and demanding than a podcast, which in itself is, you know, a lot of work, especially on editing. Mm-hmm. And then, which is also, you know, if you wanted to write, that's also very demanding too. And I mean, you, it's already difficult to take these really complex ideas that we tend to think about and talk about and put them in a way that doesn't diminish their value. Like I don't ever want to quote unquote dumb down anything. I feel like my the audience is way smarter than I think a lot of people give them credit for. But there is a sense of like, you you do have to make these kinds of things as a, a accessible? And how do you translate the jargon into something that, again, doesn't lose the nuance, but still, you know, is it doesn't require a, a law degree or a doctorate to, to understand. And so that is a, that is a skill. And that is something that's really challenging and something that not a, not a lot of people are good at, especially scientists or people who do research. And so it's just, it, there's so much to take a complex idea to distill it down into one medium, like a podcast, much less try to break it up in, into more mediums. But I, I totally agree on the idea of if the scientific community was really, um, like really behind 
the idea of sharing their learnings at, to a broader audience. And then that that was the important thing was to inform and educate a broader audience. I do think that we would make the time in this space for video. And I, I think you see it with um, like uh, PBS has Game Slash Show with Jam and Warren. And it's fantastic. And I love that show so much. And it deals with really complex topics around you know, games and everything else, you know, gender and literacy and violence and addiction. And it just it's this really great distillation of information from an expert through a reputable source like PBS. And but it's in a format that is consumed a lot more rapidly and uh, much more easily than some kind of dense psychobabble journal. On November 3rd, the Geek Therapy community is participating in the annual Extra Life Marathon, where we play games for 24 hours to raise funds for Children's Miracle Network hospitals around the world. Since 2008, Extra Life has raised more than $40 million for sick and injured kids. If you want to help out, you have two options. Visit geektherapy.com slash extralife, and one, join our team and raise funds from friends and family and play on November 3rd. Or two, donate right now to any member of Rare Candy. On November 3rd, Geek Therapy will be streaming live for 24 hours as we continue to raise funds on game day. Visit geektherapy.com slash extralife to learn more, join our team, or donate. Thank you, and I hope to see you on November 3rd. The main idea of this episode is the idea of peer review. And I think that everything that we've just said shows us that very few people review something in the sense that uh, when something is academically peer reviewed. But I love the idea that, okay, if you put it out there as either a PBS show or on YouTube, then more peers can see it. I think I think that there's value in that. And your peers are not just the other people who are at your level professionally or that are always in the same um, sphere. Like I think I think there's a lot of value to be gained from other other uh, people at different levels, at different um, experience levels, at different um, with different expertise. Um, like you brought up Ali's videos, for example. Ali's a great friend of mine, and every time he puts out a video, I watch them and, and like I have comments because, um, like you mentioned, he like he he um, you try to condense things into five minutes, right? And it's a really complex topic, and sometimes that really bothers me. Like, uh, like, and and I think that by putting it out there, he's able to allow that sort of again what I'm calling peer review or the equivalent of peer review that would happen in some sort of academic journal. I think it's happening in the public space and. I don't know. Like, I feel, I feel like that's, I don't know if it's the future, but I feel like maybe there isn't as much value placed upon that type of peer review. I like, I, I keep using the word peer review because it's like a general <laughs> term, right? I know it means something in academia, but I think that it, it, I wish it meant something more. I think, and some people say like, oh, the market decides, you know, like if your stuff is good, people will gravitate towards it and it will and people will be able to critique it out of the open and, and, and the best ideas will, will flow to the top and reach more people. And I, I really believe that. I, I think one of the, the biggest hurdles to overcome, because I, I agree with everything that you just said, um, I think one of the biggest hurdles is this idea of gatekeepers. So anyone can publish anything on YouTube. I mean, there's plenty of flat earthers out there. There's people who think that all sorts of stuff and there's no, except for like the most horrific things, there's no filter and there's no gatekeeper and academia and science and researchers tend to be kind of precious about their gatekeeping. And they, they see themselves as kind of entrusted with this incredibly important role of, you know, keeping the good from the bad, from elevating the good works and keeping the, the, um, 
the bad works or the, the not good works out. And again, that's a whole other discussion about how well that actually works. But I think that will be a quintessential piece to looking at, say, peer review in a public space like YouTube versus a, a private space like a journal. And I would love, I would love if there was some kind of peer reviewed YouTube channel where, you know, you would have maybe a, an academic peer, you know, so someone who is at least familiar with the topic that you're talking about. Because if, you know, if someone came to me and was like, hey, read this astrophysics thing, I, I am not going to be helpful. I'm not going to be able to say if that's accurate or not, or if at least plausible or not. Also, to your point of having the people who are consuming it have some kind of say, maybe not, I don't know if having a say, because again, there's there's an issue I have. I'm thinking about, okay, what if I were to put one of my research papers out as a video? I can totally imagine getting, you know, what about it and um, actually, and, you know, it happens even when I tweet and I'll tweet out something and I'll get somebody who from what I can tell, has absolutely no experience or training or education in a particular subject, trying to, you know, either drag me or get me to like explain the entire of, of you know, three years worth of research down to them in, in tweets. And I, I mean, I've had this happen personally on Facebook. I've had this happen on Twitter anytime or not anytime, but sometimes when I post research related content. And that, at least as a researcher, is really exhausting because you don't want to have to have to deal with that. And I think that's something that we would really have to wrestle with as a community and how we would go about dealing with that idea of, of gatekeeping so that not everyone, just because you put a, a video on YouTube, it doesn't mean that it's good or that it's accurate or that it represents the science. And if we could solve that issue, I think it'd be great. But I think that everything that you just said is also applicable to journal articles to a certain extent. Yes. Every single thing. <laughs> <laughs> and again, th- th- don't get me wrong. Journals, academia has major, major issues that it, that it's currently wrestling with and trying to address. But I would say generally, I would believe what is published in an academic journal before I would believe something that was in a video. And I'm, I'm just saying that broadly and not regardless of who wrote it or what the topic was. But I think that kind of the journal carries with it that gatekeeping that that somebody looked at this and, and fact checked it and verified that, you know, this was good science. And there's just nothing like that. And even though it sometimes is wrong or not well done, there's at least that check where there there are no checks at all on YouTube. I, I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. I think that there are there are there are checks on the there are no checks on the publication. That is true. But there's still like people are people are there. People are going to comment. And yeah, there's a lot of I, I understand. There's there's tons of potential for every everybody's an expert, right? Once they see your video, they have an opinion and they, and yeah. they are an expert. Um, so that's that's absolutely true. But uh, and don't don't get me wrong. I, I want to live in your world, Josue. I, I want <laughs> us to get there. I want somebody who is maybe a junior scholar or doing. Um, their undergraduate research or like a master's thesis or something who puts together a really thoughtful, in-depth conversation or discussion or, or research and they, they choose the format of video. Like I want to be able to elevate that. I want that to be seen as valid as a journal article. And I, I don't know what it would take to get there, um, mostly because the existing systems that we have are not really conducive to video. And even if they were, they are not entirely stable, uh, so to speak, or, or always uh, the, the greatest examples. But I think that would be a great way to get more unique and interesting ideas and voices 
into the research. And that is definitely one thing that I, I have seen is that uh, junior scholars have a really hard time publishing um, because there's just so few places for them to do it. And that it's really challenging because for them that impacts their, their livelihood. And it also hurts established researchers who only want to see their own work cited over and over and over again. And I, I, there are plenty of examples of researchers who have rejected, who are assuming as peer reviewers, who have rejected research where their own research was not cited, saying this is not well-researched enough. So there are, it's definitely problematic. And having younger, fresher, newer voices in the research, I think, can be very, very helpful. And I would love for there to be more avenues for people to share their ideas. Always terrified, though, of the person who's sharing the idea like, hey, let's let's kill all puppies or something. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I've tried to do with the Geek Therapy Network is I've I've listened to a lot of the members of the community and I know that people disagree with each other. For example, I you and I disagree on a whole bunch of stuff. Never. But that's out there. Like we we both have we both are able to share our voices on our content. And for example, I disagree with Ali Matu on, on so many things. So now he's on GT Radio with me every week. That's like, that's my answer to it. And when um, I know members of the community disagree with each other about how certain people do things, I've gone the opposite way. I'm saying, you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to give everybody a platform <laughs> and see what happens because I don't want to be that gatekeeper. Who, who should be a gatekeeper, right? I don't think the whole idea of a gatekeeper um, in this context, a gatekeeper of ideas, right? Because I think we didn't make maybe a good distinction at the beginning talking about the fact that there's like quantitative and qualitative research, but then there's also like essays and, and thought experiments, right? Like you mentioned before. So there are different types of ideas that can be conveyed through academic journals and through other mediums. People's intentions are completely different, right? Some of these shows, like some NPR shows that I love that are the most thought-provoking things I've ever listened to are are kind of, well, in the, t- in the sense of NPR, they're, they're supposed to be like a public good. But others, um, other podcasts are for business entities, right? They're just making money and selling ads while sharing these ideas. So there are different intentions, right? An academic, a researcher who is trying to get a job as a professor, as you mentioned, uh, has a completely different goal in mind. But the idea of being able to uh, have be exposed to those ideas or to be able to share your ideas and then get that, that peer review, right? <laughs> Again, I think, so uh, Ted has a platform within YouTube. It's, I think that's the way it works. It's, it's basically a website where you link to a YouTube video of yours and then you can easily add an educational component to it. You can add quiz questions. You can tag it with different things. So you can basically make a lesson out of a YouTube video. It's a, it's a really cool platform. I think it's TED-ed, TED.edu, something like that, right? Uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. So maybe something like that for, for research or for a peer review might be kind of cool like maybe you kind of you do set a standard for who is considered a peer right so it's like okay well you you work in the field or you have this much experience or i don't know right like you you draw that line but you draw it way lower than the three editors of the journal and then you upload your video and then you get you get like this this different type of peer review that isn't just comments and thumbs up and thumbs down on a youtube video I think that something like that might might move us in in a in a direction that that I kind of I kind of like. How does that sound? I mean, you're talking. In a, it actually reminds me a lot of um, Stack Overflow, which is the uh, the forum for like troubleshooting any kind of programming problem you could ever have on the internet. And that 
I mean, I think you could definitely argue has a peer review system because when somebody, you know, asks a question, not only does the question get voted on, but the the answer gets voted on. And so the idea of, you know, the best answer gets pushed to the top or the mm-hmm. most helpful, the most, which, of course, in that case would be the most accurate, the most real, well-researched gets pushed to the top. And right. I, I really love that caveat. Yes, you can gain the system and there's algorithms, everything can be manipulated, blah, 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 which would also be stuff that we would need to think about. Um, but I, I do think that if there was... Oh, actually, I think you kind of see it on specialized Reddits, actually. So mm-hmm. if you're on car Reddit or, you know, like the psychology Reddit, you see the same thing happening where the best questions or the best information or the best responses gets kind of the, the thumbs up from that group. And so I, it is, I will say it's possible because all things are possible. But I do think there there is some kind of critical point that we'd have to either navigate or figure out wherein when the community extends outside those in the field or the interest group, then you start just getting a lot more noise rather than signal. And we'd have to figure out how to how to manage that. But yeah, I, I love that idea of having, you know, the, the jury of your peers be a large representative sample of a peer group rather than just, you know, two or three people who happen to be on a board. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing like that for podcasting right now. There could be, right? <laughs> There's no reason why there, there, there shouldn't be, but there, there isn't right now. But iTunes, yeah, like, uh, rate and subscribe, give us five stars, please. So that's a popularity thing, though, right? Yes, and, no, absolutely, and, yeah. And that's why I feel, I feel like YouTube is also a popularity thing to a certain extent. But I think that there is more opportunity there because the comments are built in, the up and down is built in, and if you're presenting an idea. Again, like it's different because we have vlogs and we have music videos on the same platform as we have thoughtful, insightful essays. So I think that when you like a song or you don't like a song, you, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down is maybe different than agree, disagree. Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe that's an option. Maybe you add like, okay, so I am adding something for, um, for like academic discussion. And then maybe you don't have a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Maybe you have a agree, disagree or, or comment. I don't know. Like, I think there are different ways to do something like this if there was an interest. And in the next 10 or 20 years, I can't imagine that we wouldn't be seeing more of that. You know, how many kids are saying like, can I, can I, can I just make a video instead of a, (laughs) instead of a research paper? It'll take me 10 times longer, but you know, it's what I really want to do. It actually reminds me a bit of the way Amazon has their feedback system set up right now, is -hmm. that not only do you get to leave, anybody can leave feedback, but then there's verified purchasers yeah. who are have who carry more weight but then there's also um uh, on there instead of like ups and downs it is was this comment helpful mm-hmm. and that's the up or or yes it was or no it wasn't and yeah. that's another interesting paradigm for thinking about it because one of the tough things would be i agree except for this one thing that i have a problem with um yeah. But yeah, so I mean, that that might be a, a way of looking at it. And again, the caveat of, you know, working the system, breaking the algorithm, all that kind of stuff aside, you know, that, that could be an interesting way of, you know, having a group of peers actually look at your research, ask questions, have that kind of open dialogue and debate. And I think that would produce some better research. Like a Stack Overflow, for example, if you're there, that's because you're coding, right? Yes. You're, 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 you're writing some sort of code. And so... As a beginner, I've been able to give the feedback of like, yeah, this was super helpful. Thank you. But maybe as I'm more advanced, I might see something and say, you know what? I don't think that that's the best way we could possibly do that. There's another way. 
mm-hmm. and possibly do this, right? So then, then everybody's input is valid, but like the the line is drawn at you are coding, <laughs> right? Yeah. Versus something like YouTube, where it's like everybody's on YouTube, or Facebook. Ugh, Facebook's even worse. Yeah, it's those those special interest groups where your peers are actually your peers and not like your great aunt Sally. Yeah, yeah, and again, I'm I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's really. That's what I really wanted to get to is that I think that our peers are not just people who have doctorates, people who have master's degrees, people who are researchers. I think that consumers are our peers when it comes to video games, right? Mm-hmm. Our peers are many different people at many different stages. And I think I think that a lot of those ideas are very valid. Oh, my God. I, I wish there was a journal for fan theories. Because there's so many fantastic <laughs> fan theories that that have that demonstrate just a level of like reasoning and attention and critical thought that goes beyond most of the research papers that I've ever read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good point. Good point. All right. So this has been Headshots on the Geek Therapy Network, a discussion on peer review. Thank you for listening. Um, you can find more Headshots at headshotspodcast.com or at headshotscast on Twitter. I'm at Josue Cardona. Kelly is at Kelly and Dunlap. Kelly, is there anything else you want to plug? Just as a, a reminder, if anybody is interested in getting into publishing, I am the editor-in-chief of the newly established Game Self and Society Journal. It, we are peer-reviewed, we are indexed, and we are currently accepting uh, paper submissions until uh, September 30th, 31st, whatever the last day of September is, is our, is our cutoff. So if you're interested, just feel free to email me or hit me up on on twitter and would love to see what you guys are researching thank you for listening everybody we'll be back in two weeks you've just listened to headshots on the geek therapy podcast network discuss this and all episodes on the network by visiting the geek therapy forum at forum.geektherapy.com and for extra content including our monthly book club and other perks consider becoming a member of geek therapy on patreon for as little as one dollar a month at patreon.com slash geek therapy